I realized that if I didn't do it, no one was going to do it for me. Like after I got passed up for that promotion that I mentioned earlier in this show, I realized, wow, if I depend on somebody seeing how awesome I am, it's still not going to work. I need to see how awesome I am. It's time to create a life that's better than your dreams with the I Heart My Life show. I'm Emily Williams, the founder of I Heart My Life and your I Heart My Life show host. This is your one-stop shop for all things personal development meets lifestyle. So pull up a seat, get out a pen and a paper and get ready to learn. Welcome to the I Heart My Life show, Jen. I am so excited to have this time with you. And I know I say that before every single episode, but truly you are someone I've admired for so many years. And I'm grateful that I've been able to be in your presence multiple times and learn from you. And um, you're so generous with your connections and the work that you do in the world. So it's just an honor to have you on the show. Oh, I feel the same way about you, Emily. I'm. It's finally happening. We are finally getting together on your show. So I'm excited about this conversation. Yes. So like I said, I've admired you for so many years and you've worked for with so many incredible brands and people um, pretty much in every single industry, it seems, at least that's my perception. And so I'm so intrigued about not only how you got started, but how you've made so much happen in your life. And I know we're going to uncover that today on the show, but can you take us back and talk a little bit more about the story behind the success? Yeah. You know... It's a long winding yarn, but I'm going to try to keep it as succinct as possible, but still give you all the interesting, fascinating details. Because I'm like you, I, I think just people are fascinating and their stories are fascinating. So I grew up in a tiny little town in Hawaii. Um, and I swear to you, the moment that I was cognizant around like the way I thought and the way that I wanted to do things, I, I, I would ask God, no joke, seriously, like, why did you drop me off specifically here? Nothing to like uh, say anything bad about the little town I grew up in, but it, I was just such a curious little kid. I loved the library. I had read through all the books in the children's section and then moved on to the adults, so much so that I found the joy of sex when I was like number eight, that book. And I told my entire fourth grade class how babies were made. Like, that's the kind of kid I was. So to get an idea of, because I was so interested, like, oh, look at this. Wow. You know, and so when you grow up in a little town, specifically a plantation town uh, where it's mainly immigrants, um, I come from a Filipino background and my grandparents immigrated to the U.S. to uh, find opportunity. And so when you grow up in that kind of small community, where everybody on one hand is absolutely taking care of each other, but on the other hand, to think bigger than what you're already given is really taboo, right? So I was that kid, Emily, in second grade, who answered the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, that's kind of the standard question in second grade. And all the boys were saying they wanted to be police officers or firefighters or doctors. And then the girls were saying, oh, I want to be a teacher or a nurse or even a mom. And when I got up, <laughs> I said that I wanted to be the general counsel of Coca-Cola International. That was my answer in second grade. And first of all, Sister Fatima, who was the nun, who was our teacher, was like, what are these words coming out of your mouth, little girl? And number yeah. two, you know, she thought I was acting up in class, like, oh, you're trying to you know, show off and use bigger words than people understand. And I'm like, no, actually, um, the reason I knew that is my grandmother, who had a seventh grade education, every morning 
she would put me on her couch and she would have Lipton hot tea and peanut butter toast with me. And she would read the newspaper and she would give me the business section. And this is me in kindergarten, first grade and second grade. And she said, I don't understand this. What's what's in here. But I think that you're so curious, you might be interested in it. So from a very early age, even though my grandmother didn't know she was um, helping me widen my perspective, I was reading the business journal in the in the newspaper and on the front page on one particular day, it was the head attorney for Coca-Cola. He was being quoted um, on the front page of the business journal. And I thought, wow, that seems like a kind of cool job, you know, because um, Coca-Cola International is an international company. Uh, sounds like I'll be able to travel and see the world. And um, and I think lawyers make good money. So this is my second grade brain, you know, thinking, okay, maybe I could be that. And so when they asked, who do you want to be when you grow up? I thought that might be a good choice, right? Because <laughs> it just seemed like it. So now I didn't become a lawyer, but I did become obsessed with brands and Coca-Cola International still, uh, even with technology, et cetera, um, is still the number one recognized brand in the world because <laughs> you can get Coca-Cola to Timbuktu even if you can't get Wi-Fi there. So, you know, I think from a very early age without knowing it, I was fascinated with exploration, understanding things, uh, and understanding how people worked. And then also noticing when I asked questions, how people could also be offended, repelled, or ignore um, that as well. So, you know, again, I was a little bit of a weird kid, <laughs> but proudly so now looking back, but it was hard for me when I was younger because I felt very misunderstood. So that's the backstory. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I got goosebumps as you were talking about your grandma handing you the business section. That's so, so powerful and really rare. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious to know, how did all of that transpire into the work that you do today? What were some of the steps that you took, you know, in, in entering into adulthood to create the life you have now? Yeah. So I definitely thought from that moment that I thought, okay, I'm going to be this. I made a plan. And when I say plan, it wasn't like a I wasn't some weird second grader who built a strategic plan or anything, but I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. That was kind of what I thought I was going to be. And so when I got into college, um, I was an economics major and I realized that I didn't like it. You know, I, I was like, I was, a, I was a business major. And when I would take the marketing and the management courses, I was really intrigued and I loved the, the psychology of audience behavior and like how, you know, products move the world. And I thought that's way more interesting to me. So I switched my major to marketing and it was scary because I think that people resonate with this. Even if you weren't as, let's call it, I was perceived to be very certain of what I wanted. When you think you're certain or you think there's a specific path you want to go, changing that really like, it can be stressful. <laughs> And I was like, oh, should I just keep doing this even though I'm not feeling it? Um, and I, when I decided to change, I had to actually like add in another six months of school to really pursue that degree. And these are not the things you do when you're, you know, the Asian child of people who like appreciate that you're a straight A student and you know what you want and blah, blah, blah. So I was un doing a lot of these expectations on me and mainly my expectations of myself. So jumped into marketing. 
uh, got that and then got my first job out of college was uh, with Ogilvy and Mather. And if any of you are familiar, Ogilvy is like the top advertising agency in the world. David Ogilvy is the father of copywriting and marketing. Uh, every great marketer studies his work in order to be effective in their jobs. And so anyway, I had this opportunity and check this out, full circle moment. I was a junior copywriter. And what that really meant, Emily, is I brought coffee in for the account executives. <laughs> I didn't really do any writing, but I had this front row um, fly on the wall kind of seat to how they were architecting influence. And at 22 years old, I was like, wow, you know, all of the psychology and honestly, the strategy and the metrics and the science behind it, because I think a lot of people think of branding and marketing, et cetera, or strategy to be more um, creative. And it is, but it's this melding of creativity and science together. And anyway, the first account that I got that fly on the wall moment was for Coca-Cola International versus Pepsi. And talk about full circle, right? Like, and I thought, oh, okay, like I actually am getting a little bit of what I thought, but in a whole different wrapper, in a whole different way. And I feel like back to like the dots connecting, you know, we always kind of look backwards and go, how do they connect? Like my grandmother handing you the newspaper and me having that moment in front of Sister Fatima. And then now I get to have a front row seat to like how Coca-Cola has become such a dominant force. Uh, and it was just really cool. And it was in that moment that I learned, um, about brand archetyping and that particular lesson has followed me throughout my entire career. So I went from that and I wanted to be a full bodied strategist. So I went to high tech and I started, um, doing product development. And then I went to, um, go to market launching, uh, for other companies. And so, cause I wanted this, this well-rounded um, skill set. And also, honestly, Emily, you know, I'm an entrepreneur now and I've been an entrepreneur since 2006, but I never thought I was going to be one. I had a plan at that point. I hope you guys are noticing, like I had all these plans and they didn't work out, um, but they did. Um, I wanted to be like CMO of a high tech company and potentially like CEO of Google or, 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 or YouTube. This was my next big goal. I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. So, um, so yeah, that's a little bit of how I think to, to me, the takeaway is that, especially if you're, let's say younger listening to this, um, or you're wondering, um, and when I say younger, not necessarily in age, but in something you want to do, um, that actually trying a few things to see what really sticks with you and that you can get inspired and motivated around, even if it's scary to do that type of trial and error, it'll actually serve you in the long term. So that's that's kind of what happened. And then I left uh, the corporate world in 2006 because I got passed up for a promotion. And even though I had worked my buns off, like for two years, bringing what is now streaming to the continental US, I was the head of the project at Verizon where we brought streaming in 2006. So now we all watch Netflix and we all watch, you know, uh, Hulu or whatever. But I'm that gal who um, brought it to market. That's how, like, and so I always tell people I'm, I'm not a spring chicken. I'm a seasoned chicken. I've seen a lot. I've done a lot. But the same strategies in the corporate world have really helped me in my entrepreneurial career because I was able to right-size, frankly, the speed 
and the lessons you have to learn in entrepreneurship, but still have a structure behind me so that I could do things more effectively. So anyway, I left in 2006 because I passed it for a promotion and I realized, okay, I have ambition, but I have no autonomy. I have ambition, but I have no autonomy. And I thought, wait a minute. And I was like in my early 30s at the time. And I thought, if I'm going to do it, I should do it now. I should go for it. And then if I, I had enough experience that I thought, maybe I can come back to the corporate world if it doesn't work out. So um, I left in 2006 and never looked back. And now I would never go back to the corporate world, except to be an advisor and consultant, which is partly what our company does with the same kinds of companies that I mentioned earlier in this story. So anyway, I told you it was a long winding yarn, but this is my story. Mm -hmm. I love how you said, you know, it was risky to kind of undo some of the steps that you had already taken and things you had put in place. And I so resonate with that because I applied to 12 grad schools around the U.S., ended up turning the car around on my way to Northwestern, decided to go in a completely different direction. Well, actually, I was directionless for five years (laughs) and it was so painful, but I just had this instinct and this knowing that it wasn't the right path. And yeah. so I'm curious, when you make those those gut-based decisions, I mean, maybe they're also intellectually based, but how did you develop that level of trust with yourself and mm. your inner knowing? Well, okay. So I really think that catalyst moment that I mentioned earlier when I got passed up for the promotion really impacted me in a way to trust my, my gut the most. Mm. And I remark on that moment because... I'm a frameworks person, Emily, like when I was in the corporate world, we used a lot of frameworks to get ish done, right? We like, and so for me, I'm actually not organized, but I need organization, if that makes sense. And I think a lot of visionaries are like that, right? It's like, we need it organized, but we're not the best to organize it. So we need other players on our team. I call that a unicorn team, which we can talk about later. But I realized like, okay, how am I trusting my gut? Why is this a good decision for me? And I came up with my own framework and tested it out. And it's called the values driven framework. Now, I didn't call it that at the time. But now I look back and go, okay, that's what I was doing. And I realized that people like us, people who are also listening, we are motivated by our vision for sure. But vision is only one component of who we are. And vision is our future self. That's the the us that we imagine in the future. But that can also be, that can also wreck us because um, it can be romanticized. It can be fantasized. Um, and so I was like, okay, besides my future self, who am I now? And when I looked at who I was now at my present self, I was like, I'm motivated by what I want to fix, by what's not working. For example, me getting passed up for promotion, even though I had earned it and I was promised it, did not feel fair. It didn't feel equitable. And at the same time, I was like, well, I'm not going to ruin my reputation because that's really what your brand does. Even your personal brand is about your reputation. What people say about you is what your brand is. And I was like, how can I be most authentic to the present me without hurting my reputation? And so I identified like what I call the voids in my life and in the world, like things that I, with my skill set and my passion and my intuition could solve. So those are the voids part. So my present self. And then I looked at, well, if there's a future in the present, there's got to be a past that's influencing me. So I started to look at in my past, like, what are some of the stories? What are some of the things that have happened to me that um, 
have influenced who I am now. And I even told you a few of them, right? Like getting up in front of second grade or my grandma handed me the newspaper. There's a lot more. And I call those the violations, meaning like what has happened in the past that has not like influenced you, but also at some point probably violated you because people are weird and people when you get like people can mess up your, the way you look at yourself, right? That's just how it is. And so back to your question about like, how do I make these decisions? I call it being a values driven decision maker. So every big decision that I make, I run through the filter of my vision, my voids and my violations. So my future self, my present self and my past self. And I ask myself, if I were just to run it through that, would it be a clean yes or a clean no? And I don't like the hell yes, hell no thing. I just think it, I call it clean because when you make a decision, you are going to trade off other options. That's part of decision making, right? You have to let go of other things that are possible. And I think as humans, we are, we get messed up around that. That's why we do a lot of maybeing in our life, right? And I say maybe is the devil. Maybe is the devil. If I'm a clean yes, then I'm going to go for it. If it's a clean no, I'm going to let it go. Now, it doesn't mean you don't feel crappy about it or you worry about it. You feel your feelings, but at least I've given myself direction. So to answer your question about intuition and intellect, I use them both using this framework. It's kind of like, what does my gut say? And then also have this framework that intellectually helps me make choices. And then I just do it from there. So that's really, I think, honestly, at the baseline of my success, when people ask me, it's this values-driven framework. Oh, thank you for explaining that. I love that. And I agree, you know, that that space of maybe, I like to think about it as like limbo land. I feel like that's where your dreams basically go to die because nothing actually happens. You're not making yeah. any decisions yes. and you're just stuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't make a... You can't make a wrong decision if now you have a framework to even do it. So I hope maybe it even helps totally. people listening, you know? Um, yeah. So let's get into the world of brand archetypes. First, can you tell us what that actually means? And I know mm-hmm. this is something you speak to. I've taken your quiz. There's lots of material that you've already delivered on this, and I know there's more to come. So please enlighten us. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I first learned about brand archetypes. I didn't even learn about it in college, which surprised me because it's such base psychological strategy for people who are marketers and branders. Okay. Um, I said, as I mentioned, I learned it at Ogilvy and to give you an example, basically your archetype is the voice and the character of your brand. And whether that is your personal brand your product slash offer brand or your company brand, because those are the three different types of brands. There's a character associated with that actual entity. So for example, Emily, you are a personal brand. I heart my life is your company brand. And inside of that, you have different products and offers and each one has its own soul character and voice, but it's all in one harmony. And so archetypes were uh, coined not by me and not by any modern marketer. It was by Carl Jung, who was one of the most famous social sociologists, psychologists. He also uh, is the godfather of the MBTI, if people are familiar, the Myers-Briggs. And so the Myers-Briggs, if you're familiar, they are archetypes, basically. They're a type of uh, characteristics that you are. And so... He talked about the 12 characters that move people to make something happen. And that are the, that's the 12 brand archetypes. And so when I 
came into the entrepreneurial world in 2006, I realized that people weren't using the power and the foundation of the characters of their brand to tell better stories, to be better at authentic influence. And so basically archetypes are, are your makeup. Um, and it's your top three archetypes in my model that matter the most in terms of your voice and your character. So the good news is I'll share with everybody a way to know what your three are with, with Emily's, uh, she mentioned a quiz. So I have a full assessment that will help you understand that and you get reports, et cetera. So we'll help people get to it because people are like, I still don't get it. Well, you'll get it when you take the assessment and then you get the reports. And in the corporate world, it was so cool because I talked about Coca-Cola versus Pepsi and Coca-Cola is a muse archetype and Pepsi is a ruler archetype. And it's funny because the muse archetype is known as the dreamer and the creative and the innocent. And you wouldn't think that an archetype character like that would be so influential in the world. You would think that the ruler, which looks like the boss, the queen, the, you know, the, the big person in the room would be more powerful. But why is Coca-Cola always beating Pepsi head to head? because they're a muse archetype and they go all the way in. So imagine the muse archetype is, think about uh, advertising by, um, by Coca-Cola. At Christmas or the holidays, they are all about um, the polar bears and Santa Claus, okay? Now, ask yourself, what color are the polar bears and Santa Claus? They are snow white. Um, in fact, if any of you have kids listening, put your earphones on right now. Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus. They actually created his character to make people subconsciously think of the Coca-Cola can. This is a real thing. Okay. And so when I was, when, when I was in that room at 22, like, wait, this is dope. This is absolutely amazing. How are they, how do they do this? And this is why they beat Pepsi every single time. Cause Pepsi is known for their celebrities and whatnot. And people love that, but they love innocence more. We love innocence. We love nostalgia. And that's what the muse archetype speaks to. So my point is, is that when you find out what your archetypes are, your top three, ask yourself, are you using the full power of the character of your story to impact who you want to attract and who you want to help? Because that's what bigger brands are doing. And that's what great personal brands, if you're on Instagram, they may not knowing they're, they may not know that they're using their brand archetype, but I can tell. I'm like, oh, she's all in this. And if she even used it more, she could even be more influential, more effective. Um, so that's the potential of knowing your brand archetype mix, as I say. So hopefully that helps explain it a little Amazing. bit. Amazing. Yeah. And we'll let everyone know how they can take that assessment. And I'm curious to know, because I personally work with a lot of coaches and consultants, I know you often do as well. And one of the things that has even tripped me up is understanding how do we have a brand, like for example, I Heart My Life, but then also have the personal brand, you know, as the person running the company, because I've always been told, you know, people resonate with people. Mm -hmm. And so how important it is, is it to, if you do have a company to be the face of that company and to tell your story and to connect with people, or is it, 
like you can have something else that kind of tells the story like the Santa Claus and, you know, the polar bears. I'm just, I think it can be very confusing for people, especially in that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So there are four stages of your business and building your brand and they're called forming, storming, norming, and performing. So when you're first forming your business, the brand is more about you. There's no getting away from it. And especially with social media, you know, this is different than 20 years ago where you could buy a Super Bowl ad and then just be the most dominant force um, on the on the way on the channels. But now personal brand does matter more than ever. And whether we like it or not, um, some people are like, I just want my product to be great and I just want my business to be known. And I I wish that it was like that. But unfortunately, that's not the way the world works anymore. So your personal brand throughout the forming, storming, norming, and performing phases of your business being built will always be important. But when you get past the storming phase, you have to ask yourself, am I the best person to lead this company now? Or can the company use me as talent, right? Just like Pepsi used Britney Spears for talent, right? To sell Coca-Cola, I mean, Coca-Cola, <laughs> see, I said Coke, Pepsi, right? <laughs> um, think of it that way. So even if you're selling services, coaching programs, um, courses, right? Ask yourself, are you really the person most qualified to run your company? Because in the beginning, the first two phases, you have to be the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the founder, CEO, janitor, all the things. By the time you reach the end of phase two, going to phase three, you've also made revenue that can at least have you at a point where like you've hired people, et cetera. And I think that that phase between two and three is the best opportunity for people to find another person to run things. And when I say you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, a multiple six figure hire, but somebody who can run the operations of the business full time so that you're more focused on partnerships, brand opportunities, uh, media, uh, ways that you can elevate the brand as the founder, not necessarily the CEO. And so that's what I call my unicorn team framework, where um, you have the visionizer, and I call them visionizers instead of visionaries on purpose, because people who are truly successful aren't just visionary. They are visionizing, meaning they are, eyes means action. They are in action. They are taking big moves, even though they're scared shitless. They're doing things that are, that are in momentum. But there are two other roles that support the visionizer, the strategizer and the mobilizer. And the strategizer is the person in charge of sales and marketing, the tactics of it funnels, sales pages, campaigns. And then there's the mobilizer who is the operational and finance like glue that puts it all together so that the visionizer can work on what matters most to the business, which is promoting the products and the services under it in a way that doesn't make them also responsible to make the money. So that's like the that's a that's the dream that I work with a lot of clients with around how can we get you there? And there's obviously a lot more steps inside of that, but just understanding that I just want to just say in the beginning, when you're first starting out, yes, you actually do have to do a lot on your own. Like anybody else, even when you start a job in the corporate world, you just, 
nobody knows their job when they first get their job. <laughs> like you learn it by being around other people. So entrepreneurship is definitely no different. And so, especially if you're a coach, consultant, advisor, I, that's why I like using frameworks because they give you a little bit of structure and a little bit of discipline because we don't have that same luxury of um, somebody funding our projects, you know, in the corporate world, man, you want to talk about waste and you got a budget and you got team and all the things you don't have that as an entrepreneur. So in the beginning, you need frameworks. And as you move through the process, um, you start to realize, okay, I'm going to fight. And I use that word seriously. I'm going to fight to not be CEO of this company. Like I don't want to be CEO. And I think most personal brands, especially coaches, consultants, et cetera, they don't really want to be CEO. They just have to be. And they do. They have to be the first phase one, phase two. But after that, you should be working towards replacing you for that piece of the business and focus more on the things you actually love, which are probably creation, product development, brand partnerships, you know, all the things that, you know, you wish you could just be doing full time. So yeah. I know that's a lot, but that's kind of the problem. No, that's super helpful. I've never heard it described like that. And I think you know, one of the benefits you've already described it um, of of you and your previous experience is this different way of thinking. And I know for me, mm -hmm. I've never been in the corporate world. I literally have never, I mean, I've been assistant and assistant, I've been a nanny, but I've never really worked for anyone else. So I'm coming into starting this business, not knowing how to start a business, you know, trying to navigate everything and not having the structure like you just described. So I'm curious to know what other pitfalls or mistakes do you see people making that even maybe a few years ago weren't part of the equation, but now are causing them hangups or issues um, within the oh. online space? Okay. So number one, getting comfortable with failing fast. So there's nothing that sucks more than feeling slow. I want you to think about that. And so overthinking and perfectionism are killers to your brand and your business. And I know those are obvious, but I think that the, the reason we repeat these things as people like us is because they're real. That's really what's getting in the way. I don't have to come up with a new thing to describe what's the hang up. The hang up is that, I mean, we have a, um, I, I like to fail fast. Marketing ultimately is just guessing and testing. And if you have a framework, it helps it helps to um, predict, if you can, what could happen. But you have to have your relationship with the word failure is something you need to work on <laughs> if that's uh, something that's uh, motivating you. And again, I'm not saying it doesn't feel good. I hate to fail. It disturbs me. But just because you hate failing doesn't mean that failing isn't part of the equation. So there's a difference between feelings and the truth. And the truth is, is that failure is part of winning, period. Okay. Number two, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of talk about AI, obviously, right now at the timing of this recording, and it's not going to get any quieter. It's just going to be more and more prevalent. So I think a lot of uh, creators, entrepreneurs, experts feel like, where do I belong or how do I use AI to help me grow my business? And my best uh, advice around that in terms of what not to do is don't forget that the cool thing about AI is that the human intelligence that we possess, so HI versus AI, is going to become even more wanted and needed. And therefore, and also people who are feeling lost or want direction are going to need coaching. 
They're going to need support. They're going to need opportunities. And so the more that you're willing to show up as a human and get better and better at your skill and craft, I think people market a lot of what they do, but they don't even get better at what they do. So doing both, having the skill set as well as the marketing help is really important. And number three, I think that people operationalize too early in their business and waste a lot of money and time on that. So when I talked about the first, I mean, the phases of business, you know, forming, storming, norming, and performing during the forming phase, the best thing you can do with your money is get help so that at home you have no distractions instead of like, so what I mean is if I were to rewind the clock, when in 2006, I would have gotten myself a nanny and a full-time housekeeper with the money I had so that I could focus on working hard inside of the business because it takes that energy, that initiation energy from us in the forming stage. So we being distracted with, I had two young daughters at the time, um, I could get back three hours a day just by not cooking and cleaning, right? And so... I really recommend to do that. And also what's great, and I know you know this, Emily, as you get better and better and you become more successful through trial and error, uh, you've now set that standard for your life that, oh, I'm taken care of, right? At that base level. And it sounds weird because they're like, oh, shouldn't I hire a marketing assistant first? How should I'm like, not really. I think you should try to take a few courses and figure it out and actually do something with what you learn before you even try to delegate it to uh, expert like a virtual assistant because they're not thinkers, they're doers. And so you're just going to get frustrated, right? So you just got to get it done and then you can model something for a better team to help support you on the business side, but take care of your life first and, uh, and stay disciplined. And when I say disciplined, not in a way that doesn't feel free, you know, I like to say structure creates freedom and it's true in the natural world. That's why bees and birds and, and, and plants, there's an actual structure underneath their growth. Okay. And people have a hard time with the word discipline, especially women, frankly. And I call BS on that because the root word of discipline is disciple. And if you're not a disciple of your own dreams, who is going to be, you have to be your number one fan and follower. Right. And that requires, that requires focus. So those are the three things I would say. And did you have any fears coming into entrepreneurship that you had to overcome? Oh my, oh my God, so many fears. Oh my God, I had no reason to leave my corporate job, people. I had a $400,000 salary. I had, a, I had an office, a corner office with a disco ball in it. I had a parking spot <laughs> that had my name on it. Okay, I had all the trophies and the triumphs. So I had no reason to be an entrepreneur. I had no motivating reason based on society's terms. So why did I do it? I did it because I realized that if I didn't do it, no one was going to do it for me. Like after I got passed up for that promotion that I mentioned earlier in this show, I realized, wow, if I depend on somebody seeing how awesome I am, it's still not going to work. I need to see how awesome I am. And again, at the time, I was like in my early 30s and I thought if I don't do it, I gave myself a year. I'm like, if I can't make this work in a year, I'm going to go back to the corporate world. So I think that's also sometimes you don't have to just because you choose to be an entrepreneur. That doesn't have to be your whole life. We have people now who did entrepreneurship and they're like, you know what? Now that I've learned that, I actually don't like getting clients. So I'm going to go back and work for a coaching company or I'm going to go work inside of another business. And those are okay decisions. So I, I guess 
my biggest fear at the beginning was, am I setting myself up for like, am I painting myself in a corner if I do this? Am I stuck over here if I do this? And the truth is, is you're not. You can change anytime you want. So definitely, it may sound like I'm super confident and like all my story, you know, I'm telling you, I'm scared every day, people. That's what, yeah, but you know, fear is, there's a difference between fear and danger. These are all, again, like self-awareness, personal development, understanding there's differences. Like I did a lot of personal development on myself. I'm like, oh, I'm being motivated by fear, but I should be motivated by danger. So is it dangerous for me to do this? Most times it's not. You know, as an entrepreneur, you're not walking out in the middle of the freeway, right? Like, feels like it, but you're not actually doing that. And so fear is, uh, they say that in your brain, um, when uh, they look at your brain, it lights up, your brain lights up the same around fear and excitement. So whenever I'm scared, which is daily, I take a deep breath and I remember this is also excitement. That's why I'm I'm doing it. And uh, I just have given myself no choice but to do it. And that's, I think, the other thing. It's like, burn the ships, friends. Like, if you want this, this is not masculine or feminine. This is, do you want autonomy in your life? Do you want full control? This is, entrepreneurship is honestly the only way to get full control because then you can live and die by your decisions. So for me, that motivates me. If no no one starts a business because they think it's going to be easy, but they start it because they want to create a lifestyle uh, that relates to them. And whatever that looks like for people, it could be you want a million dollars. Great. You can create that. Maybe you just want space and time uh, or flexibility at work. Great. You know, whatever. I think that's the other problem. I'm just going to name that is like, I used to be this, I have to make eight figures to feel like I'm successful. And I've done that. But I didn't feel more successful. I just was like, okay, now what? Because that's kind of how we are as people. We're just silly creatures. And so I was like, now does my life reflect how I want it to feel? And at the time, it didn't. I'd made all this money. It still didn't feel like, so what's the point of working this hard or, 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 or facing my fears every day? And I realized like sometimes our goals aren't the the right goals. You know, I, I definitely, I love money. I just want to be clear. I love money. I love being able to create my own economy, but I also like now that I'm in a certain phase of my life where I just want to mentor, teach, and be with my family even more than ever. Um, I've even like ratcheted down my business. You know, I used to have like all these funnels and all these things. And I just decided I just want simple, boring money. And then live the life of my dreams. So I think that people's goals are off. And so for me, I fear more losing my family. I fear more that I'm going to be dead tomorrow, which sounds a little brutal, but the truth is we only got one great life in this particular meat sack, (laughs) whatever you believe. And so I just was like, I got to change my goals. And so in the recent, in the past, since the pandemic, actually specifically, I changed my goals. I simplified my business so that I didn't have to be CEO driving everything. And now I focus more on my peace and prosperity uh, versus anything else. So anyway, that's what I'm scared of. I'm scared to lose myself. Yeah. I'm scared to lose myself is the answer to all of that. You know? Mm, Yeah. So would you say that's what scares you on a daily basis? Yes. I'm scared to, I'm scared of not doing the most that I care about while I'm here. Um, and 
it's changing that perspective around fear. And how did you, in the past, how did you lose yourself um, Mm -hmm. in your company or in your business? What did that look like? Actually, you know, what's interesting is I don't think that from a business perspective, those things I feel pretty good about, even if I, I definitely have failed a lot, launches didn't always go as I wanted, et cetera. But I don't believe there's such thing as a business problem. You can find people like Emily or me or other people to help you with the business problems. There's no such thing as a business problem. There's only personal problems. So that are, t- that are getting in the way of you being as dynamic and happy as you could be as the leader of your company. So my biggest areas to work on friends was relationships and my health. So when we talk about like, where did I fail? Those were the failing areas of my life that kept my success and wealth and myself um, stunted a bit. Like I was like, why am I still not super happy? Why am I still not joyful? And it was because I wasn't eating well. I barely moved my body. Uh, and definitely relationships, they were always on the side bender. Like it was kind of like, not, I wouldn't treat people poorly, but I definitely wasn't around. Like nobody, I wasn't available to anybody. And including my kids, including my husband. And um, I just hope that when you're all listening, like I, my failures mainly came in my personal life. And I think that when you, um, I'm divorced, you know, I lost a marriage in 2008. Um, and had to repair a lot inside of me and with my children to figure out how I could be the best mom possible and still be that ambitious, weird little kid that I described earlier, like this curious person who gets fascinated by all the things in life. So the bottom line is I feel like um, take a look at your personal life and ask yourself how it's dragging you down in your business because Mm -hmm. it usually is that. Yeah. And would you say that, like, because I resonate with that, Um, everything you just described, I've always put my health on the back burner. It's always been about my work and my purpose. So what was driving you? Was it the desire to make more money um, above all else? Or what was the thing that you think was fueling that? Yeah, in the beginning, it was I was so afraid to lose the things that I had given up in my corporate career, like I was making great money. And I knew that coming out or coming into entrepreneurship, I would be able to match that exactly at first in the first few years. But in my head, it was like, if I hit that milestone where I make as much as I was making there, that was kind of my first goal, then I've made it, right? And so, yes, that was my only thing I cared about was like, because in my mind, I was like, well, that affects everybody. It affects my kids. It affects the house we live in. It affects, you know, all the things. And so it was very money driven. And I don't think that also that was necessarily a bad thing, but unfortunately, when that's all you're focused on, you do start to forget about the other parts that actually matter too. Because money isn't, it's not a, it's not a or thing, it's an and thing. You know, your health, yourself, your wealth, and your relationships are and things, right? And we're never gonna be balanced. I don't believe in balance, but I do believe in harmony and self-awareness of what is being traded off. Um, and if you're mindful of it, even if you're disappointed in yourself because you had to make a trade-off, you at least know why you did it. You're not just living life by default. So. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of that motivation was also fear-based. Like what's going to happen if I don't make this money? And when we come at sure. it from that place, <laughs> that's yes. not there. So, so interesting. Exactly. So um, 
One other question before we start to wrap up. So you mentioned that personal brands are what people think about you and your reputation. So I know that we live in the cancel culture, essentially, and a lot of people are freaked out about starting something because they're worried about messing up. They're worried about getting canceled, about people not liking them. And, you know, as much as we want to kind of like (laughs) brush that to the side and be like, we'll get over your fear, just do it. It is a very real thing. And so what are your thoughts on that? And what do you say to people who are scared of even getting started because of that? Yeah. So first of all, you're not wrong to be scared about it because it's a real thing. I want to acknowledge and not avoid that these, this is a new way of living and every, like there's a lot of touchy subjects, a lot of triggering, uh, and frankly, a lot of fakery on that. You don't even know what's really not real sometimes. Right. And so you're afraid to play a part in that. So I just want to acknowledge if you're listening that you're not wrong to be worried about that. But three things that I think will help. Number one, when I talked about your values earlier, if you values are not thoughts, they are actions. So when you are first promoting yourself or, you know, and when I say promoting in any way or sharing yourself or sharing what you do, I want you to think about how if you're in alignment with your values, that yes, you there are definitely going to be people who are not going to like what you said. They're going to, or you're going to feel like they're ignoring you. And it's, I just want to acknowledge it's, it doesn't feel good to be ignored or, or, or called out, but that's going to happen. It happens to all of us. I'm sure it's happened to you, Emily. I've, it's happened to me. And I'm like, well, if I know that these are truly my values, then I'm okay with it. I want you to think about someone, you know, or a brand that, you know, that has opposing values as you. The reason you know they're opposing is because they were willing to speak their values. Whether you agree with them or not, they're willing to talk about it. And so whenever I'm pissed off at politics or anything, because I do, I'm like, oh, but they're at least standing on their values. I can respect that. I don't agree with that. I will do everything in my power to help people think my way, you know, but I can't stop them. And that's why, number two, you have to remember, we need you. We need you to be in action around your values because people are looking for people that they align with. And number three, um, just accept, as I said, that it's going to happen. And the key is, is to be consistent. I know everybody hates that word, but repetition is the mother of mastery, as I like to say. And that's why creating, um, be a good mother to yourself, create systems, be around people, get the right coach or advisor for you to uh, help you navigate through those feelings. But I think I just want to say, because I know there's a lot of women listening. We're the worst, meaning we're the worst at fearing that. And we also tend to be pointing fingers at other people. I call that pink slime. And I hope if you're listening that you realize that we're better together. And if you have a strong force field, a strong community, a strong group of people who can help you navigate when people come at you, that's what you need. And you need a good therapist. I really believe in that. So that's what I would say to all of it. Mm, Thank you. So before we get to the final question, where can people find you in the online world? Yeah. So my favorite place to hang out is on Instagram. So you can follow me at jennifer.kem, K-E-M. And then um, also I will send to 
uh, Emily, the specific special um, I Heart My Life show link to that brand archetype assessment so that you can take it. And if you have any questions when you get the reports, feel free to message me on Instagram. I'm happy to have a chat back and forth on it. Perfect. We'll also pop that into the show notes. Amazing. So the final question we ask all of our guests is what is one way that people can create a life that's better than their dreams and far exceeds their expectations? Mm -hmm. Live your values. That's my answer. Always live them. And when I say values, remember, they're not your thoughts, they're your actions. So get your feet moving in the direction of your values. Thank you so much, Jen. This has been amazing. I've learned so much. I know everyone listening has as well. So thank you so much for doing this work in the world and for all of your wisdom. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. Thanks, Emily. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the I Heart My Life show. Now do us a favor and tell people about this episode. It's truly our duty to make sure that the I Heart My Life movement is spread far and wide. The truth is life can be challenging, but it is possible for all women to love themselves and their lives. And while you're at it, send a link to this episode to three of your friends today, or maybe even post it on social media. Use the hashtag IHeartMyLifeShow. That's hashtag IHeartMyLifeShow. And if you'd like to help me personally, then please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give us some stars, cheer us on, and leave a review. Because believe it or not, that stuff actually really does help. And I read all of them. Please remember everything you desire is meant for you and possible. Keep showing up, taking action, and believing in your dreams.